So like Alex said, we are continuing in our, uh, in our series in First John. So if you can, please take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to First John chapter 2. Um, I guess in God's providence, I'm sick again, and so please uh, bear with me. Um, If if you can, pray for my family, actually. Laura is the the last uh, parent standing, um, and all three kids are sick right now. I took one of them to the pediatrician today. yeah, so they're at home, hopefully resting, not driving lower crazy, but yeah, please keep them in prayer as well. So First John chapter 2, um, I'd like to read actually from chapter 1, verse 5. So 1, 5 through 2, 3. <coughs> this is the message we have heard from him and announced to you, that God is light And in him there is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and yet walk in the darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he himself is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. 2 verse 1. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous And he himself is the propitiation for our sins, not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. By this we know that we have come to know him, if we keep his commandments. The one who says, I have come to know him, and yet does not keep his commandments, is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word In him, the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. God, I pray that you would help us to be faithful um, to this text this evening. Uh, May your word do um, do the work um, that the words of man cannot that you would bring life to dead souls, that you would bring conviction, and that you would bring transformation. So pray that your spirit guide us and teach us um, and be with us tonight, God. I pray all this in your name. Amen. <coughs> so for every individual who has professed to know Christ, in the end will ultimately hear one of two things from Jesus, right? He's either going to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. Or on the contrary, he's going to hear something else, which Jesus stated when he wrapped up the Sermon on the Mount. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name cast out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice what? Lawlessness. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Lawlessness, anamia, means no law. Depart from me, you who live as if I gave you no law to live by. 
Depart from me, you who live with utter disregard for God's law. Right, but, but wait a minute. You know, whoa, our, our contemporary evangelical knee-jerk reflexes cry out, well, hold on, we're not under law, we're under grace, right? right? All it takes is to accept Jesus, right? Lord, Lord, I'm a Christian, I'm saved. Well, why are you saved? What makes you sure of your salvation? Well, because I, I prayed the prayer, right? I signed a card. I did the altar call. I walked that aisle. I made a decision for Christ. I even got baptized. I even got involved at church. I served in all these ministries. I did all this stuff. But I'm telling you, to come before Christ on that day, and hear the words, depart from me. Depart from me. I mean, those would be the most horrific words to ever fall upon any man's ears. And they will ring in his ears as he is plunged into everlasting darkness away from Christ. And even an eternity in hell will not be enough to soothe the teeth gnashing bitterness. Lord, Lord. Now you see, Western evangelicalism is not interested in the question of the assurance of salvation. Right, why talk about why talk about this? Why would you want to shake people up? Right? This this is so negative. We don't we don't need that. Instead, Western evangelicalism is overrun with this notion of free grace, or some would call it carnal Christianity. It's taken from First Corinthians three three. This is where as long as someone professes faith in Christ, that person will be saved, regardless of what his life looks like. So he can have Jesus as Savior, but he doesn't need to have Jesus as Lord. Right? For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life, right? That's all Jesus said, or that's all John said. He didn't say, whosoever believeth in him and then obeys him and submits to him and takes up his cross and follows him will then have eternal life, right? Dietrich Bonhoeffer called this ideology cheap grace. This is Bonhoeffer. It is the preaching of, of forgiveness without requiring repentance. It is baptism without church discipline. It is communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ. Right? A free ticket out of hell and all I need to do is pray a prayer? I mean, sign me up. Who wouldn't want that? I have fire insurance for hell, so I can go on and live my life now as I please. I think Jesus would respond with, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? Luke 6, 46. And some seeds fell on the rocky places where they did not have much soil. They sprang up, but when the sun had risen, they were scorched. They had no root, and they withered away. You see, the doctrine of lordship salvation asserts that faith inherently brings about the fruits of repentance and righteousness. 
and submission to Christ. Yielding to him as both Savior and Lord. You see, the New Testament uses the word Lord 748 times. And 667 of which refer to God and Jesus. Now that Greek word for Lord is, is, what is it? Come on, you see Santa Cruz. What is it? Kyrios, right? <clears throat> and <clears throat> the, uh, on the contrary, the New Testament uses the word Savior, which is soter, from which we have soteriology. Remember, lighters? Um, it uses the word Savior. How many times do you think? So yeah, 667 times the word Lord is used in the New Testament, referring to Christ, God. And the word Savior is used 24 times. So it would seem that the focus of the New Testament is on Jesus Christ as Lord, more so than just as Savior alone. Right? And, and, and there's a caveat. Jesus Christ as Savior, him being our Savior, is in no way downplayed in Scripture. Okay? But him being our Savior is the essential means, the conduit, the avenue through which we are made to become his. It's through him him being our Savior that we are adopted into his family, that we are brought into his fold. It is through him being our Savior that he is made our Lord. Because salvation is not only a transaction, but it is a transformation. 1 Peter 2.24, he being Jesus, he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that what? So that we might live as we please. So that we might live in licentiousness. Jesus Christ himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. So we are saved into a new subjection. We are saved into a new serfdom, becoming royal subjects, as it were, to a king. We are emancipated from enslavement to sin, and we're brought under a new master, Jesus Christ. We're no longer a slave to sin, but now a slave to righteousness. We're put under a new yoke. But contemporary American evangelicalism is almost allergic to any notion of cross-bearing devotion to Christ. Hey, we don't need that. Don't, don't quench my spirit. I prayed the prayer. Enough said. And here in our text, the Apostle John challenges empty, cheap grace professions of faith, and he encourages his readers to find assurance of salvation in their submission and in their obedience to Christ, which leads us to our outline. So we're going to break up this uh, passage, this small passage, into three sections. Actually, two sections. First, so the title is The Assurance of Salvation in Obedience, and we're going to be looking at uh, two sections. First, Knowing Christ Compels Adherence. Knowing Christ compels adherence, which is verse 3. And secondly, obedience review, reveals the completeness of our salvation. Obedience reveals the completeness of our salvation, verses 46. So let's first look at knowing Christ compels adherence, verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. This is very simple. It's very clear. 
By this we know. I pop quiz. What is First John about? What is this epistle about? What have we been talking about? What is this? What is John writing about? First John. <clears throat> Does anybody know? <laughs> Uh, well, it is written so that you may know. <laughs> First John five thirteen. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that what, so that you may know that you have eternal life. That's what this epistle is is about. That's what John is is talking about. This is how you will know if you are saved. Or if you are not saved. This is how you can be assured of your salvation. Right? By this we know that we have come to know him. How? If we keep his commandments. Now just a little background. Like the peddlers of cheap grace in our day. John was engaged in an all-out war against the pre-Gnostic false teachings that were fracturing the early church in his day. Now, conventional Gnosticism wouldn't fully come onto the scene for uh, another century or two, but these were the seeds of that heretical teaching. So Gnosticism essentially taught that you must come upon some special, esoteric, higher knowledge to truly be saved. Right, this is the stuff of hooded cloaks and secret handshakes. Right? <clears throat> Gnosticism is from, uh, the word Gnosticism comes from the Greek word gnosko, to know. So are you in the know? Right? Do you know? <clears throat> and one of their primary teachings is that matter or the physical is evil and the spiritual is good. So you have the material world, the, 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 the earth, uh, all of creation, and our physical bodies. And then you have the spiritual realm. That is good, but the material, this is all, this is all bad. Um, so when you have that line of, uh, of ideology, there's two ways it can go. So you have two, one route is asceticism, which is a harsh treatment against this evil body because it's bad. And then the other route would be an indulgent, hedonistic type of, type of lifestyle. Because what I do with the body doesn't matter because it's evil as it is. So let sin abound. Right? <clears throat> let me live as I please. There are no ramifications, no consequences. <clears throat> Now, being that John wrote this epistle to the churches in Asia Minor, his recipients were predominantly of Gentile background, okay? Mostly Gentiles. And you got to know, to the Gentiles, especially in this time, not in today's Judeo-Christian-influenced culture, to the Gentiles, immorality was the norm. It was just the way life was. Even in their religious systems, the gods of the Gentiles were not unlike their mortal worshipers. Their gods were given to wanton immorality just the same. So this idea of a holy God requiring holy living of his people was a totally foreign concept to the Gentile mind. But if you have this Gnostic idea, this notion that you can be saved from judgment and at the same time continue to live the life that you are living, a life of licentiousness, you could do whatever you want, well, that was very palatable. And that fit perfectly well and good in their Gentile minds. Now, at the time of John's writing, evidently there was a sizable contingency of people. There's a big group of people who were following these false teachers, and they've left the church. And we've realized that later in chapter 2, verse 19. They have gone out from us. And now those who remain, you know, you're wondering, it's like, 
what's going on? <clears throat> Do they know something that we don't know? Have they figured something out that we haven't figured out? Are they right and we have it all wrong? Are they saved and we're not? So it was a moment of crisis as the church was struggling with her assurance of salvation. Are we saved? Do we have it wrong? Now, I ask you, have you ever struggled with your assurance of salvation? I know I have. But it's not a bad thing to take into consideration to take into consideration and to be serious about. I mean, maybe it's not good to wallow in it and not do anything. Uh, <clears throat> but it is good, it is sobering, and it's actually biblically instructed to cross-examine yourself. Am I saved? Am I in the faith? Because Jesus was serious about it, and the apostles were serious about it. Maybe we should be too. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, 5, test yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Examine yourselves, or do you not recognize this about yourselves, that Jesus Christ is in you, unless indeed you fail the test? <clears throat> so in my third year of college, <clears throat> I mean, I, I was really, really struggling with this. And I was talking to my discipler, um, <clears throat> Jim Mares, actually. I was like, am I saved? You know, I don't feel saved, right? How, how can I find assurance that I'm saved? You know, I, I, don't, I don't feel it. And, and that's where I had it wrong because I was looking for a feeling to confirm my salvation. Uh, I guess I was looking for a sensation of salvation, but that's not where the assurance of our salvation is found, right? We're not looking for some warm and fuzzies, okay? We're not looking for some, some tinglings behind our neck, <laughs> right? John tells us that we can be assured that we are saved by looking at three things. So far, I guess we're covering, well, we covered one, we're covering two t- second tonight. But essentially, we're looking at truth and life, Okay, truth and life. So what type of truth have we believed? And what type of life do we live? Truth, what, have we accurately and faithfully interpreted the gospel? Okay, life, is our lifestyle characteristic of one who is in Christ? So last week, Pastor Ray covered uh, the truth portion, uh, essentially uh, the gospel. Um, <clears throat> if we say that we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves, and the truth is not in us. Verse 9, 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us. And when we sin, who do we have? We have an advocate in Jesus Christ. An advocate who himself is the propitiation for our sins. It's all gospel, truth. So is that the gospel that we have embraced, that we have believed? And now our passage tonight challenges us. So we've done the truth check, so now... Let us assess our lives, our character, our conduct. Verse 3. By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. So how do we know that we have come to know him? How do we know that we are in the faith? How do we know that we are abiding in Christ? How do we know that we are saved? If we keep his commandments commandments close in prayer there it is but 
as New Testament believers, especially just in our spiritual climate in, the, in this day and age, oftentimes we are put off when someone starts talking about obeying commandments. Right? All that commandment stuff, that's an Old Testament thing. You know, I'm a New Testament believer, right? See, there's a blank page between the Old Testament and New Testament in my Bible, right? <coughs> right? <coughs> lost, lost my page. Yeah, so it'll be interesting to know that there are 1,050 commandments in the New Testament. 1,050 commandments in the New Testament, much of which was echoed in the Old Testament law. Well, I don't know about all that Old Testament law stuff. I just, I just focus on the red letters, right? I just focus on Jesus. <clears throat> well, then let's, let's look at some red letters. Jesus speaks in Matthew 5, 17, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. Christ did not come to abolish the law, to eradicate it, but to fulfill it, to complete it. Christ is the end of the law for righteousness, right? So not only so, but he came and he even raised the bar, right? What did he say about murder? What did Jesus say about murder, right? You have heard that the ancients were told you shall not commit murder. And whoever commits murder shall be liable to the court, But I say to you, this is Jesus speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. But I say to you that everyone who is, what, angry with his brother shall be guilty before the court for murder. The seventh commandment. What is the seventh commandment? Thou shalt not commit adultery, right? Whereas the teachers of the law would define adultery as sexual infidelity that breaks the covenant of marriage, Jesus raises the bar again. But I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lust for her has already committed adultery with her where? In his heart. You see, the scribes and teachers of the law believed that they had the exercising of God's law down to a T. Right? They created all these other laws around it to protect the law. Little did they know that God was not concerned with their external actions as much as the heart motives that governed such actions, right? For man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart, For Samuel 16, 7. So here when John says, by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments, He is speaking of external indicators of inner realities. Okay, you catch that? John is speaking about external indicators of internal heart realities. Now, the New Testament has 1,050 of these external indicators. Um, So let's take a look at some of these. New Testament commandments which could help us gauge and help us know if we have in fact come to know him. Right? What are some of these New Testament commandments? 
Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good, Romans 12, 9. Do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance. Let not sin reign in your bodies, Romans 6. Flee immorality, for you have been bought with a price, 1 Corinthians 6. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good, Romans 12, 21. Do not get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit, Ephesians 5, 18. Do not be conformed to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind, Romans 12. Do not grow weary of doing good, 2 Thessalonians 3.13. Put off anger, put off wrath, put off slander, and filthy speech from your mouth, Colossians 3.8. Do not lie to one another, since you laid aside the old self with its evil practices, Colossians 3. Be patient in tribulation, Romans 12. Be fervent in spirit. Be of one mind. Be tender-hearted toward one another. Speak the truth in love. Let the word of Christ richly dwell within you. Bear one another's burdens. Encourage one another and build up one another. Encourage one another day after day as long it is still called today. There are the 1,050 I can go on. But I will save you from that. And if it's all of those are hard to keep track of, Jesus has boiled it all down to two for us, right? Love God and love your neighbor. I guess I could have just said that. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and with all your mind, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Matthew 22. What does Jesus say about these two? On these two commandments depend the whole law and the prophets. So how are we doing? By this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Do you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? Do you? It's a real good heart check every now and then. You you look at your life, you, you look at your thoughts, you look at how you're living. Do I love God? Do I love him with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength? And, and sometimes that can be a little subjective. And if that's hard to gauge, your obedience to the second commandment is often a good measure of your obedience to the first. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Now all those commandments that I spouted off, many of them, and most of these commandments are replete with the one another's. Right, that kind of sums up our, or, or, or that kind of hashes out and gives body to what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. When you look at all the, the biblical commands regarding the one another's. So how are you doing in loving your neighbor? How are you doing with the one another's? Um, now this past Sunday, one of our members collapsed um, during the second service. <clears throat> but by God's grace, he was discharged from the ER and, and he was doing fine. But it was, it was also incredible how God orchestrated everything on Sunday. And I'm not sure if you noticed, but he orchestrated everything in such a way where all the events that took place really illustrated what P.H. was preaching that very morning from the pulpit. Right, Ephesians 4. And he gave some as apostles and some as prophets for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body, 
until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. One body, many members, speaking the truth in love, building one another one another up, where in the end, we are just one body. There are no dropouts here. It's either we all make it to that shore together or we don't make it, right? <clears throat> and so on Sunday, we, we, we're so blessed to have all these, so many skilled medical professionals in our midst, like Craig and even Craig and Tiff, our very own flock group counselors, um, <clears throat> And they're, they're able to triage uh, his condition right away. We even have a former deputy chief of the San Francisco Police Department in our congregation. And he knew the drill. He knows the drill. He didn't miss a beat. He called it in immediately. And he headed for the stairs. And now I was sitting in the back. <clears throat> oh. And then Lord nudges me, <laughs> do something. <laughs> uh, so I, I saw Garrett running down the stairs. I followed him out there and went, ran down there to flag down the paramedics. And, and then in no time, in a heartbeat, two fire trucks and an ambulance pull up around the corner from 18th. Just like that. And the ushers had all the doors and all the elevators uh, prepped. Uh, to, to help our brother uh, out as he's being carried down. Uh, Stan accompanies him to the hospital, making sure he wasn't alone. Um, all of these parts and pieces simply just kicked into motion. And it was a real-life illustration of what P.H. was preaching from the pulpit. The saints are equipped for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith. Everyone looking out for every other. All these saints, body members, worked in concert toward one end, each one contributing its part ultimately for the physical well-being of one member, for the physical welfare of one person. Now, I'm curious if we are looking out for the spiritual well-being, the spiritual welfare of one another with as much effort and tenacity. Do we move heaven and earth to lift up a brother or sister who is struggling and stumbling? One who is discouraged or wandering from God or wandering from fellowship? One who is overcome with depression? Do we go out of our way to reach out to one who is alone or one who is enslaved by lust? Or one who is battling homosexual feelings. Or one who is struggling with contentment in singleness. Or one who is finding a hard time finding community. I mean, have you bothered to notice the several homeless folks who have visited our church in the recent months? Now, one reason the pastors decided to have us go through 1 John is for us to to reevaluate how we are loving one another. I mean, some of us do it very well, and you are a blessing to all of us. But others of us need a little push. Uh, We're sort of you know, love one another challenged. We're, we're a little stunted in this area. But this is a requirement of all believers. Because the evidence of our love for one another is a barometer. It is an indicator of the reality of our salvation. The evidence of our love for one another is an indicator of the reality of our salvation. We'll see later in 1 John, 1 John 3.14, he writes, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. In chapter 4, verse 20, 
He writes, if someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. So I challenge you, may we grow in our love for one another And may those who already do it well, may you excel still more. So I guess that's some very pointed application. Um, So we've seen I forgot the name of the first point. Oh yeah, knowing Christ compels adherence, verse uh, verse 3. And now moving on to um, second, obedience reveals the completeness of our salvation. Obedience reveals the completeness of our salvation. Verse 4, the one who says, I have come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. And the truth is not in him. This is one who does not keep his commandments. Now, this isn't talking about a static, momentary lapse of disobedience. So this is a pattern of life. This is a disregard for Christ's commandments. But you got to know, these are not just people who don't know God, right? These aren't just people who are oblivious to the gospel. They don't know God, and they're, they're walking in disobedience due to ignorance. These are professing believers, all right? The one who says, I have come to know him. This, these are those who claim to be believers. These are professing Christians. They can talk the talk and they could do the whole charade, yet their lives prove otherwise. Their lives are lived in whatever, whatever way they want. They live their lives how they want their own way. These are people who Titus, who Paul writes to Titus saying, they profess to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. Titus 1.16. And John doesn't mince words. What does he call them? He calls them liars. The one who says, I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Liar. He's a deceiver, a person who falsifies, who distorts. And this term for liar is used ten times in the New Testament. Okay, ten times. And the first Occurrence in the New Testament is in John chapter 8, 844. This is where Jesus, uh, responding to the Jews, <coughs> the unbelieving Jews, <coughs> who claim to be ch- children of Abraham, <coughs> and he says to them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whenever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature. For he is a liar and the father of lies. So the one who claims to know Christ, the one who professes to know Christ yet does not keep his commandments is a liar. Like the ancient liar, the father of lies. Those who claim to know Christ and do not keep his commandments are like their father, the devil. They are the seed of the serpent of Genesis 3. They are sons of disobedience, following the prince of the power of the air in Ephesians 2. They have not been adopted into the family of God, but they remain children of wrath. We need to test ourselves, examine ourselves. 
that we are or we are not in the faith. And what else does John say? The one who says that I've come to know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. The truth is not in him. And I must ask you, along with all the the marketing department of Gatorade, is it in you? Is it in you? Is the truth in you? I'm not asking if the truth is around you. It may very well be around you. You may be surrounded by the truth. You might be immersed in the truth like you're swimming in a pool of truth. You're going to church. You're coming to fellowship. You go to BSF, what have you. You may be familiar with the truth. You can recite the truth. You can flip your Bibles like none other. But is it in you? I'm not asking if you're familiar with the truth. Because familiarity does not equate to salvation. It does not equate to regeneration. Is the truth in you? Have you embraced it Within Has the truth pierced your heart? Has the truth struck the core of your soul? Has it struck your conscience with convicting force? Has it transformed your life so that all your desires and all your yearnings have been hijacked? All that you long for and all that you crave now is to be like Jesus and to be with Jesus. So that your heart screams, I am a wretched, wretched sinner in desperate need of grace. Cause me to walk in your ways. Cause me to love your word. Cause me to keep your commandments. Is the truth in you? How do we know? How will you know? Verse 5. But whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. How do you know if the truth is in you? How do you know that you have come to know him? How do you know that you are in Christ? Whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected. Whoever keeps his word. Same keep used in verse 3. Whoever keeps. Now this is John's favorite word instead of do. Right? Not whoever go and do his word, does his word, go and do it. But keep, literally watch, guard, keep safe as if a precious, precious thing. John could have said, do his commandments, carry out his commandments, or go perform these tasks. Whoever performs these commandments, accomplishes these commandments. But he chose to use the word keep. One author writes, John chose to use the word keep. No doubt it means to obey. This is F.D. Maurice, for for those who who might want to know. This is an old book, actually, one of my professors gave me. No doubt, keep means to obey. The word keep may help us to know what obedience is and what it is not. A friend gives me a token to keep for him. He wishes that it should remind me of him, that it should recall days which we have spent together. Perhaps it may only be a flower 
that was gathered in a certain place where we were walking. Perhaps it was something precious in itself. But what if instead of giving me something, he instructs me to do a certain thing or not do a certain thing? I may, I may be said to keep that injunction in the same way that I keep the flower. To fulfill is to remember him. To obey is to remember him. It is a token of my fellowship with him. It is a token of my relationship with him. So keeping his commandments, keeping his word, obedience to his commands has to do with relationship. At the end of the day, that's what it's all about. Thy word I have treasured in my heart that I might not what? That I might not sin against thee. Psalm 119. Right. How much effort do you put into scripture memorization? How much effort do you put into spending time in the word at all? Thy word I have treasured. Thy word I have kept in my heart, lest I forget your ways, lest I forget your truths, lest I let go of your hands, lest I wander from walking beside you and sin against thee. May it never be. May your word guard my ways and guard my thoughts. May your word guard my heart. May I keep your commandments that nothing may get in the way between you and me. So John says, but whoever keeps his word, in him the love of God has truly been perfected what is that about perfected so that word means to be completed okay it's not talking about like oh just perfection how you we might see as oh this is a, a uh, the perfect you know you, you go to in and out this is the perfect perfect uh, Four, five, four, whatever it is, people get there, oh, right? You know, this steak is cooked to perfection. No, it's more, it is complete. It is, it is well done. <laughs> um, it is, so this word means to be completed. It means to be accomplished as a work that is finished. So when Jesus cried out from the cross to Telestai, it is Finished. The work is done. It is complete. The ultimate aim is achieved. The end goal has been arrived upon. So John's saying here, whoever keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. The end goal, the end aim of our salvation, our justification has been arrived upon. Now, I just want to take a step aside. I hope you guys have seen by now that John's not talking about 100% 100% compliance. Okay? Don't worry, there is hope. Okay? It's not looking for 100% compliance. This is a pattern of life. This keeping and this observing of his commandments. Right? 
Because God knows our frail frame, and he cares. Christ is not oblivious to our needs and our weaknesses, for we do not have a high priest who cannot, what? Sympathize with our weaknesses, Hebrews 4.16. And he knew that we couldn't do this alone with this fallen flesh nature that we are still embattled with on a daily, on a momentarily basis. That's why he had promised long ago in the new covenant that what? I will put my what within you. I will put my what within you. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. This is Ezekiel 36, Jeremiah 31. It was promised ages before you and I ever came onto the scene. Ages before the cross. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. You are not alone in the fight. So do not be discouraged when you see the the sin that remains. We call it to mortify. Mortify the, the sin that still remains in our members. Yet take heart. He is with you in the fight. Right, the the people who 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 are who proclaim and and espouse cheap grace are the ones who would say, you know, God loves you and He has saved you, so you don't need to worry about this sin that's going on in your life. You don't have to worry about uh, sanctification and and words like mortification, like oh, you know. No, that should be a four-letter word. That's, that's not in the Bible. You know, just go on and live your life. You're saved. No need to dwell upon uh, the, these sins and, and these issues. You're forgiven because you prayed the prayer. You walked the aisle. You have your heaven-bound ticket in hand. But scripture teaches us that, that if you understand the love that God has for you, if you understand and you have that spirit of God that has, that has been embedded in your heart, that if you are living in sin, in this pattern of sin, your heart will rot within. You will have no sleep Your soul will be troubled and distressed until you repent and change. Because the redeemed heart will not permit itself to live on in sin. There will be God-wrought turmoil within. There will be a holy discontent. So take heart that you are not in the fight alone. And we have to understand that in this time, okay, in this season of existence, I was about to say season of life, but this encompasses all of life. So in this era of your existence, in this life, we live in this tension of the already and the not yet. Okay? Lighters, old lighters from back in the day, remember? Are we righteous or are we not righteous? Are we righteous or are we not yet righteous? We're righteous, right? The answer is yes. Yes, we are already righteous, but yes, we are also not yet righteous. 
We are righteous because we have been justified by faith apart from works. We have been justified. That means we have been declared in the court of God as righteous on account of the righteousness of Christ. So that righteousness, his righteousness has been placed upon us. Righteous. And I'll ask you, after you come out of a, a fight with your parents, or you just told a lie, <clears throat> or you looked at something you shouldn't have, and I ask you, so are you righteous, or are you not yet Righteous. Sanctification is still in process. But John writes here, but whoever, verse 5, keeps his word in him, the love of God has truly been perfected. (coughs) By this we know that we are in him. The one who says he abides in him ought himself to walk in the same manner as he walked. So as believers, we can find joy. We can find assurance for our salvation in both our justification and our sanctification. From the truth of justification, knowing that we have been declared righteous in the court, in God's court, that we have embraced the biblical gospel, saved by grace, through faith, through Christ, apart from works. We are justified. But we can be assured also, not only through truth, but in life, as we have seen, in the life of sanctification. By this we know that we are in him. While we work out our salvation with fear and trembling. What does Paul say, right? Work out your, your salvation with fear and trembling. For it is what? For it is who? For it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. You're commanded to work out your salvation with 100% tenacity and diligence to pursue sanctification. But At the same time, it is God who is at work in you 100%, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That's the mystery and the beauty of sanctification, that you are not in this alone. So when we fight sin, when we engage headlong, head-on against sin, and when the Spirit of God works within me, compelling me, refining me, recalling scriptural truths to mind, purify me, and as we defeat and eradicate sin in my life together, I rejoice because I am seeing that the Spirit is at work in me. He has caused the Spirit to be Embedded within me to cause me to walk in his statutes, to be careful to observe his ordinances, to keep his commandments. And I see that I have come to know him. I am chosen. I am justified. I am in him. God's spirit is within me, causing me to walk in his statutes, causing me to keep his commandments This seal of my redemption, this pledge, this promise of his spirit within me, this engagement ring of assurance that my bridegroom will one day come for me. And by this, I know that I have come to know him if I keep his commandments. 
for all along I see that it is him keeping his commandments through me. So the end, at the end, God alone gets all the glory. Let's pray. God's, our salvation is such a precious and such a wondrous thing. And we have no claim to it. It is all yours from its inception to its completion. You are the one who came. You are the one who died. You are the one who justified. You are the one who sanctifies and brings newness of life. And ultimately, you one day will be the one who glorifies. God, what a privilege it is that we can partake and we can taste and we can revel in and we can marvel in as beneficiaries of this wondrously glorious salvation. May your name be forever praised and how you save sinners to the glory of your grace. In Jesus' name, amen.